Our reading today comes from Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. So it'll be on the screen. You have a few Bibles in front of you, um, or use your device, which I'll be doing this morning. It's on page 911 in uh, the, the Pew Bible. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came among them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the body. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas the high priest, Cephas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the uh, cornerstone. And there is no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a noble sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not be spread further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. The word of the Lord. You know, years ago as a campus minister, I was asked by some students to attend a, a pro-life event that they called a life chain. Uh, volunteers were asked to line up along a major thoroughfare through the city, simply holding a sign that said, abortion stops a beating heart. That was all it said. I, I had never been a part of anything quite so revolutionary before, so when some students and I took our post near Midtown, I did so with a little bit of anxiety. Uh, but I was not prepared for the reaction uh, that we got standing on the side of this road. I mean, granted, there were a couple people who, who honked their horns in obvious support, but they were drowned out by the opposition, going away. And I was amazed at the things that happened for the people that drove by. We, we had garbage thrown at us. <clears throat> I learned some creative vocabulary words that I didn't know before. I was amazed at the gymnastics of one lady who, who was leaning rather precariously out of her you know, passenger side window just to scream things uh, about us. 
But after it was over, we had a chance to sit with the students and do a little bit of debriefing about what had happened and ask the question, why? Like, what exactly were the passers-by objecting to? I mean, we, we assumed that it couldn't be the factual nature of the sign. I mean, it's incontrovertible that abortion indeed does stop a beating heart. But clearly it seemed like we had struck another nerve. And we started trying to figure out what exactly that was. Hold that thought for a second. Because we've come in a place in our study through Acts where all of the elation of the things that have been happening meets its first opposition. Look, in the first couple chapters, you've got the apostles. I mean, just basking in the glow of the resurrected and ascended Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit and the communion and fellowship between all these new believers. It's a very heady time, we assume. But all of a sudden, he reaches this abrupt reality when Peter and John happen to heal a man who was lame from birth. That's when the opposition starts. And it turns out that this first wave of persecution comes from a group of religious leaders known as the Sadducees. Remember, there's two brands of religious leaders who were ruling in that day. The first were the Pharisees, which you've probably heard of, but the second were the Sadducees. The, the Pharisees would have been considered like the religious right. Uh, these were the conservative, uh, the legalistic, the domineering. The Sadducees, though, however, were the, were the more theological liberals. They were materialistic, rationalistic. They had no, no belief in the supernatural whatsoever. No evil spirits, no angels. And what they saw is, is when they thought about the kingdom of God, they saw it in strictly political, earthly, uh, humanistic terms. And since they didn't believe in an afterlife, their focus was on doing good deeds in this life. They were the ones who cooperated with the Roman government and even took a bunch of places in the colonial uh, rule. But most offensively to the apostles, they denied the resurrection, which of course was the entire topic of Peter's sermon that he just preached. But the question is, what was it about this, this fledgling movement of Jesus' followers that got these uh, rulers so alarmed and so angry? Because when you look at the gospel on paper, like you'd wonder why anybody would want to be against it. I mean, victory over the grave had been achieved by this redemptive act of God's only son, Jesus. And he is now ruling at the Father's right hand so that he can set the world to rights and bring in a kingdom of peace and righteousness. I mean, who's going to be against that? Well, here's the answer. The people who are already in power. Because the people who had already rejected Jesus the Messiah were the same people who were in charge of the institution that administered all of God's law, all of God's justice, even to the point of controlling the lives of religious people. That institution, of course, was the great Jewish temple. And when all of a sudden this new movement comes up, that presents a problem. And add to the fact that you strongly suspected this movement was trying to upstage you, which absolutely they were, and suddenly diminish your power and prestige it used to have, this must be stamped out, right? Look, so far we've been focusing our study on how Jesus can continue his mission, even when he's not physically present. But this morning we need to see what really is the nature and the motivation of the opposition that Jesus' followers often get from the outside. And what you find in Acts 3 and 4 are at least three things that the Sadducees employ in order to try to maintain their control over people, things which I think you'll see are quite in operation still today. 
The first one is going to be attacking goodness. The second one is questioning authority. And thirdly, they are challenging power. Let's take that first one. They're attacking goodness. Look, listen to the setup of this whole incident. Like in the previous chapter, Peter and John, innocently enough, are on their way to the temple to pray. And they come across a man who's been lame from birth. Well, apparently it was this man's custom to sort of, I don't know, post up near the temple gate and beg for money. Well, Peter tells him he doesn't have any money, but what he does has he's going to give to him, which is to tell him to rise up and walk, which he does. Chapter 3, verse 8 says, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. I mean, it's a fantastic miracle. And I realize that when you read these stories of the early apostles, it's tempting to see them as like, um, you know, traveling magicians, right? Wandering around from town to town and kind of zapping sick, pe- sick people, trying to get them into better health. But I do think that the language that, that Luke is employing is doing something much more subtle. Because what Luke says in chapter 3, verse 8 is, and he says it twice, by the way, is that the lame man was leaping. And the fact that he says it twice is one of those clues. Remember, we've been talking about repetition is one of those Bible study clues that you want to look and say, Luke is trying to say something here. And I think what's happening is is Luke is trying to unpack something about the Jewish expectation for what the Messiah was really going to be. And you see it really all over the Old Testament, but nowhere more explicitly than in places like Isaiah 35. In that chapter, you have the old prophet talking about God's people returning from their time in exile, their time as slaves in Babylon. But along the way, God is preparing them. He's, quote, strengthening the hands of these people. But listen to the language he chooses in verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah 35. He says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. You see the connection? Why, when the lame lame leap for joy, it's a sign that God is in the process of strengthening his pilgrim people as they go along in their mission to heal the world. That's the sign. And this, is, and this is not the first time you see this kind of language. Do you remember back in Luke chapter 7 when you've got John the Baptist stuck in prison? And he sends some of his followers to go ask Jesus, Hey, <clears throat> are you the one or are we supposed to look for another? Which is kind of a strange question coming from a prophet who only chapters before had said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why is he doubting all of a sudden? Answer, because he's in prison. <laughs> Something must have gone wrong here. My life was supposed to turn out to be great. I was going to be helping you along with this. Right, Jesus? Right? You remember what Jesus' response to it is, though? He tells his followers, he says, look, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preaching to them. See what Jesus is saying? He's saying, look, you know that God is strengthening his people for a mission out into the world when you begin to see lame men walk. There is no way that that's not what Luke is referencing here in Acts chapter 3 and 4 in this story. But if you've got that as background, what you begin to find is what's really at the root of Jesus' confrontation with these power brokers. Because these these Sadducees, they know their Bibles, And they know exactly the fact that the apostles are interpreting their Bibles around what Jesus came to do. And they're actually on their heels. And they're threatened by it. 
And because they're threatened, they begin to get emotional about it. Actually, in chapter 4, verse 2, it says that they were, quote, greatly annoyed. I think that's interesting. Because what you realize has happened to the Sadducees is they've left logic behind. If you, can you relate to this? Where all of a sudden, like, good common sense kind of goes out the door and goes packing, and you are purely working on reaction right now. I'm going with my gut. And you know that it's crazy when you see what they're opposed to. What are they mad about? Just wait for it. A man getting healed. That's what you're against? <laughs> you're against this? Look, one of the more curious things that you'll find about gospel uh, opposition, and very disturbing for that matter, is when you find yourself being against something that was clearly established for the good of a crippled poor person. Look, when all of a sudden you find yourself sort of critiquing and being like, well, and, and dismissive of people getting better lives because it came through somebody that you may disagree with, we need to check ourselves and make sure that maybe I'm not infected with the spirit of the Sadducees. Look, I think this is really important to establish because what you're going to find is so much of the early opposition to this Jesus movement was not anything that was rational. The Sadducees are acting off of, their intellect is gone. They're going with their gut. And so when we find ourselves opposing an obvious social good, what you show is, is you're committed to something deeper. I don't know if you ever had this experience where you watch someone begin to flail in anger and frustration, and you think to yourself, I don't know that this is really about what you say you're angry about. Maybe there's something going on. And I realize that Christians often get tagged as being the anti-intellectuals in the room. You know, just have faith, people caricature us as saying. And I'm sure that's right. But the simple truth is this. Both believer and unbeliever are still working off the basis of faith. A Jesus follower simply said, look, I have set my faith on Jesus as the author of all truth. While the person who is an unbeliever has set their faith ultimately upon themselves, upon their own autonomy, for them to be in charge of their own life. So when something comes along to challenge that power, what ends up coming back is I default to my fundamental allegiance, which is to me. And when I'm threatened, I'll even take steps out to the absurd. How dare you help that man walk? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? You're against this? Look, I think we're in a time in American Christianity where, where we're in the process of losing, at least in our imagination, some cultural respect that we thought we had in times past. Please understand, America is secularizing. Church attendance is plummeting. And, and the, there's this great increase of what the, um, uh, the, 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 the pollsters call the religious nuns, the people who mark none when they ask what religion you are. And what that means is, is that in the coming years, you and I are going to have to function more as exiles. Exiles, like those who are sort of on the outs. But here's the thing to remember about our passage. God is still at work among the exiles. Don't be the antagonist who can't rejoice when God does work among people that you perceive to have taken something from you because you may realize that there's something going on underneath that you've not looked at. Look, a number of years ago, I found myself in a season in life uh, where I was going to see a therapist. And I was talking to him. Uh, at one point, he interjected and he said, you know, Les, honestly, it really sounds, as I hear you talk, like you are depressed. And as I started thinking about it, I realized I was going through a difficult time in life professionally. I'm trying to be as vague as I possibly can here. 
And it was, it was the kind of professional time where, I'm sure you've been here, where you just feel powerless. You know what I'm talking about? Where, where circumstances are dictating everything that happens to you, but you feel like you have no agency to make things better. And he looks and he goes, I think you're depressed. And I corrected him. I said, no, I'm not depressed. I'm angry. To which he kind of let a grin spread across his face. And he goes, <laughs> he goes dude, those are the same things. And what I didn't realize was that he knew that he had learned is that when we get the most angry, it's usually because my most, deep, my most deeply held fundamental commitments are, are being threatened. What are those things? Well, I think that we can generalize to that. And it brings me to my next point. Because what you get is not only them attacking goodness, but they also begin to question authority. And that's what's underneath the hood right here. Because what you see in verse 7 is, is there's this healed man in their midst. And the Sadducees ask, hey, by what power and by what name did you, see, did you do this? Now, this is important because the Sadducees actually get what's going on here. When you have the presence of a healed person in your midst, that is inherently a claim of authority. They know that what the disciples are doing is a direct challenge to their positions of power. And boy, oh boy, if that wasn't enough, listen to Peter's answer. Talk about being controversial. He says, well, we did it by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Then in verse 12, he adds this little nugget. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. <laughs> and out come the knives of every single modernist that you have within hearing distance of you, right? Look, surely you've heard people level this objection to Christians when they say things like, you know, this is my problem with you Christians. You're just so exclusive. You think, you're arrogant enough to think that you've got the market cornered on truth, that the only way here is what Jesus said. And look, let's be really honest with the text, okay? Because the text is saying very clearly, Peter is saying that there are indeed not, quote, many ways to heaven, as we love to say. There are not many ways, divergent paths up to the mountain that leads to, wink, wink, God. He's saying Jesus' truth claims are indeed exclusive of any other claim of authority, and he alone is the way of salvation. Now look, <laughs> modern people hate this way of talking, and I get it. And again, I quote him all the time, but I really don't know anyone who's interacted with this kind of worldview better than Tim Keller Ministering in, a, in obviously the very highly secular Manhattan, you know, Tim is told about hearing from untold numbers of people who say things like this, I just can't believe that there's only one way to God. That just seems so narrow-minded, so, so small. I mean, who am I to say that someone who is sincerely following the God of their own understanding can't have just as much claim to authority as anybody else? Look, I mean, the, the Sadducees, in many ways, they framed the question correctly. They say, by what power do you do this? Look, when you, when you say things like what Peter's just said, objectors are going to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're trying to exert power over me. You're trying to control me. You're trying to subjugate me, and therefore that eventually is going to lead to oppression, and therefore your views are dangerous, and they need to be stopped and silenced. Welcome to our world. But hey, go ahead and admit for at least just a second that that really does sound very compassionate to talk that way. Modern people are going to applaud the folks who appear to be so open-minded that we can finally live with each other if we just get rid of all these exclusive claims. 
Stop thinking that you've got the market cornered on truth and it will all be great. But Keller makes this point so, so geniusly when he says, when you say that no one has exclusive claims over the truth, don't you realize that that itself is a claim about reality? It is just as much a bid for power to say, nobody has the market on the truth. We're all going to the same God. As it is to stand up and say, no, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You cannot avoid asserting a claim about how the world works. Keller put me onto an article that was written about 15 years ago by a professor at the University of Chicago by the name of Mark Lilla. Uh, Lilla had grown up as a fundamentalist Christian, but had long since left any resemblance of that. But he was asked by one of his... Um, uh, someone in his department to go and cover a uh, Billy Graham crusade. Back in the day, evangelist Billy Graham used to hold these stadium-wide events, at the end of which he would invite people to come forward and be born again. Well, to Lilla's great surprise, the buddy that he had brought with him got up and responded to the invitation. And of course, Lilla was horrified by it, and he wrote about it later. Listen to what he says. This is fascinating. He says, I just found it hard to conceal my bafflement since Billy Graham really hadn't said much at all. You must be born again. That was it. And I felt this professorial lecture welling up in my throat about the history and psychology of religion. I, I wanted to expose him to the, to the randomness of the biblical text and the syncretic nature of Christian doctrine, to the church's ambiguous role as the, the incubator and stifler of human knowledge, and the theological idiosyncrasy of American evangelicalism. I wanted to warn him against the, the anti-intellectualism of American religion today and the political abuses to which it's subject. I wanted to cast doubt on the step that he was about to take and to help him see that there are many other ways to live, other ways to seek knowledge and love, and perhaps even self-transformation. I wanted to convince him that his dignity depended on maintaining a free, skeptical attitude towards doctrine. I wanted to save him. Hmm. But he, said, he writes, but I thought I was out of that business. But maybe not. It took years to acquire this education that I had missed as a man. An education not only in books, but in a certain attitude towards myself and the world around me. Doubt, like faith, though, has to be learned. It is a skill. But the curious thing about skepticism is that its adherents, whether they're ancient or modern, modern, have always been effective proselytizers. They're evangelists. And in reading them, I've often wanted to ask, why do you care? Their skepticism offers no good answer to that question, and I don't have an answer myself. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I began to realize, why am I so zealously opposing this if really what they're saying is not true? unless it is that I'm asserting a truth claim myself. Like I realize it sounds so open-minded when people talk this way, but what Lilla is saying is they are doing the same thing that they are objecting to Christians doing, making a claim about how the world works. When you say, look, I believe all religions are true in some way, what you're saying is your take on spirituality is true and my take about it being exclusive is false, which, drum roll please, is exclusive. <laughs> it's unavoidable. We look along and people come to us and say, you're just too narrow. You people are too closed-minded. But you know what they're really saying? They're saying, silence, infidel. That's what, it's, in, it's inevitable that claims of authority end up getting made and people barter for power in the midst of it. 
And that brings me to my third and final point, because I think that that's what, they, that's what these people recognize, that Jesus was fundamentally bringing a challenge to the way you look at power. Let's look at that third thing, because we not only see attacking goodness and questioning authority, but we see them challenging power. Look, we, we uncover exactly what this whole thing is about in verse 13, when, to their astonishment, the Sadducees look and say, these are uneducated common men. Now look, don't let that say, that doesn't mean that they're illiterate. What it means is that they didn't go to Bible school. They didn't go to their seminaries, right? They weren't part of their religious establishment. And that's what's at the heart of their question there in verse 7. <laughs> Who are you to teach us? They don't like the thought of ordinary men confronting them. You see, because here's the deal. In the end, what you've got here is a power game. That is, they were threatened. The, the, the Sadducees had an establishment lifestyle that was being overturned and replaced by these newcomers. And they even admit in verse 16, did you see that? That they're doing what they're doing because they're afraid of the crowds. Man, the spirit of Pontius Pilate lives on, does he not? Luke is trying to expose the fact that no one's making theological arguments here. What they're doing is, is they're in a power struggle. And here's where we've got to land on, and we'll finish with this simple thought. Christians have a very unique relationship to power. The reason is because is we know how dangerous it is. That when I set as the base note of my life control, think about that. I'm just trying to keep it in control, right? I'm just trying to make sure nothing happens to me that's out of, out of whack, and I'm trying to make sure that I can sort of establish my place and get what's mine and have my place commitment to power. But here's what's happening. Whenever that happens, and Jesus, I think, understands this, you're invariably going to treat people in a way that's dehumanizing. Because if I look at my world that way, people are either they're collaborators, right, shoulder to shoulder in the fight, or they're competitors, or worse, they're pawns. They're manipulatable. We move people. You have, to do, you have to do the Lord of the Rings in this. I know there's been too many Lord of the Rings illustrations the last few months, but that's okay. We'll get through it. But the whole the Lord of the Rings is just an, is an extended treatise on power. You know this. That's what the ring of power is all about. And there's a fantastic scene where the great wizard Saruman is trying to tempt Gandalf into sort of coming along with him, and he's got some new ideas about how they could deal with the ring of power. Listen to this. He says, a new power is rising, Gandalf. Against it, the old allies and policies will not avail us at all. This then is one choice before you, before us, that we may join with that power. There is hope that way. Its victory is at hand, and there will be rich reward for those that aided it. As the power grows, we can control it. We can bide our time. We can keep our thoughts in our hearts, deploring maybe the evils done along the way, but approving of the high and ultimate purpose, knowledge, rule, order. All the things that we have so far striven in vain to accomplish, hindered rather than helped by our weak and idle friends. You hear how he talks? It's dehumanizing to speak of people when you begin to look as your cultural product to maintain control and to keep power. When also you realize that Christianity is supposed to have reversed that equation. We get so worried about being subjugated to someone else in this life but in acting out our fears of being subjugated, invariably, we end up becoming oppressors ourselves. You can't, it, no one can hang on to the ring of power and not be affected by it. Ask Frodo. And how much of our nation's rhetoric at this time is due to our fears of being dismissed, 
Our fears of being on the outside, to being in a place where God forbid we should ever have to submit to somebody. But don't you see that this is where the Christian thinks so differently? Why? Because we worship Jesus who, according to Paul in Philippians 2, although he was in nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be fearfully held on to, but instead he emptied himself and took on the form of a, of a servant. See what Jesus did? He completely reversed how you even think about power. He said, we're not ones who have to grasp at power. We're here who are willing to give up our power <laughs> to serve others. Because as we do, we'll discover a new power that no one understands. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit to change the hearts and lives of people. But it's not because we overtook it. <laughs> it's not because we got a big army together. Not because we got a coalition. It's because we looked up and decided that we were going to serve Look, Jesus was ultimately subjected to death by his own father. And as Peter keeps saying in his sermons, he rose again from the dead to ensure that you and I will never ultimately answer to anything other than to his bar of justice. And don't you see the freedom in that? Because once we're there, having survived that, what do I care? How could I possibly be worried about someone else subjugating me? You can't knock somebody down who's already down on the ground. And he's been rescued. So if I'm free from judgment, here's the question I want to leave you with. If I'm free from judgment, why am I so worried about these petty things that I get worked up about losing in this life? And suddenly I hear the call of the Sadducees. You deserve that. What are they doing? How are they acting? You know, we should, we should get some people together. We should fight this. And suddenly we're caught up in something that just sounds a little bit like we're complicit with our attackers. But that's the goal. We can't, we, we're not guaranteed a lack of opposition. It's coming. The thing that we're praying for, the thing that we're longing for as a church, is that we don't actually get in league with our oppressors by fighting on their ground. We don't look at power that way. That's not the way Jesus led, into it, led us into it, didn't he? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would galvanize us with brand new eyes. Father, with a way of seeing that is different. Father, with a way of looking at your cross that is full of enough power to release us from the fear. Father, from the fear of someone lording things over us. Keep us, Father, from the spirit of the Sadducees. Give us strength to recognize that their assaults are not really assaults. They may sound so modern and clear to certain people's ears, but we, we see them for what they're worth. But we need help not becoming them, Lord. So give us the strength to see your cross and your resurrection in the same relief that these people did. Would you do that this morning? Or we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.